Hope we can uh, serve and bless you in some way while you're here. Um, my name is Jake Patton, one of the pastors here, and that was Tim Udage leading the service. We're continuing our study in the book of Romans. We're in the last chapter of Romans, uh, chapter 16, and that is both bitter and sweet. Um, this great book, it's been great to study. Um, it's almost at an end, but Romans chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, let's open there together. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16. So Romans 16, 1 through 16. And and as we're getting settled, if you've ever done one of those, you know, year-long reading plans where you read through uh, the Bible, the passage we're looking at this morning is usually one of those unspoken just, you know, gimme days. Like, there's, just bypass this one, skip it. Um, When we come to passages that are full of, you know, people's names or genealogies, uh, for average people like us, we just go, what's, what's the message we're, we're supposed to receive um, from this? What's the import here? What's the truth? And it's, and it's hard, and it's hard to comprehend, hard to understand. If nothing else, if you're struggling to find a name for your child, um, I give you Romans 16. You're going to have plenty to choose from uh, this morning. But what Paul is, is doing in, in this passage, he's, he's stepping out of his, his, his normal teaching, preaching, kind of pastoral mode. He's been talking to this church in Rome with, with heavy teaching, heavy exposition. And he kind of hits the pause button for about 16 verses. Uh, and you see Paul come out. Not, not Paul the church planner, not Paul the pastor, but Paul the friend. And he makes several personal references to, to people uh, that he knows. And so what that does not mean for us is that this passage has nothing to teach us. Even though he's not teaching um, he's not in preacher mode. Uh, quite the opposite. We have a lot we can draw um, from this passage. So with that in mind, let's, let's read this together. Again, this is Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. And this is God's Word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church and their house. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's pray together. Lord, you tell us that your word will revive the soul. And so we ask that you would lift us out of despair, out of shame, out of guilt. Replace it with promises. Replace it with hope through your word. You also tell us the word is like honey, even honey from the comb. And we have tasted bitterness. We have tasted false truth. Uh, Replace that with good truth. Uh, Replace it with your word. Truly feed us. Lord, you tell us the word is like a lamp and light into our feet, into our path. And we pray that you would use this text to guide us. Those who lead, those who serve uh, within the church. Protect us from distraction. Protect us from false efforts. Instead, enable us um, for the glory and for the renown of the matchless name of Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and remember back to the 80s together. And we do that a lot with me when I preach. I'm sorry, I don't know why I do that, but we always go back to the 80s. We're going to do that again. Uh, do you remember the campaign that came out late 80s called We Are the World? If you're around, during, a lot of head nods. You're around during that time. It was hard to forget, right? The song, We Are the World, and all of these you know, top 40 singers, celebrities, um, you know, each had about you know, five words of this song, and there's about 20 different singers that, that sing this together. Do you remember what that campaign was for? I forgot too, but I remember the song. I remembered the people. I remembered the mustaches. There was way too many, by the way. Way too many per capita. I remember the song, but I forgot what it was for. It was for Africa. And for a short season there, there was a time where um, you know, money was collected. And, and though they were a, a continent away, there was some togetherness. There was some oneness. And there was some unity between the United States and Africa. And you know, people would sing the song, money was raised, efforts were put forth, uh, and some good things were done. But like anything we, we touch, and like anything humans do um, in, in efforts to try to create oneness and unity, what happens to those things? Unfortunately, they're all short-lived. They have a short shelf life, right? We, we couldn't even remember what this, this campaign was, was for. And when we go back and we look at it, we look at the singers, we look at the clothes, we just kind of go, in all honesty, oh, it's painful to watch. Go back and watch it today. That's actually you know, part of your homework for this sermon, is to go back and watch it on YouTube. It's painful to watch, right? But this was us you know, back in the 80s. And so the, the, the question that this begs then is this, is can we do anything? Can we put forth any effort uh, to really... Try to embody a sense of oneness, a sense of togetherness, not just with people in Africa, but with people all over the world, our neighbors, our family, our friends, our continent, our world. Is there anything that we can do that doesn't have a short shelf life, that's not cheesy, that's classic, that can stand the test of time? Is there anything we can do to have this oneness and this connectedness with other people? And what the gospel tells us is is that no, that there's nothing in our power, nothing in our ability to create this sense of oneness. We may have some success, but again, it's short-lived. In other words, if we want to really embrace oneness and togetherness, we need something outside of us to create it. 
And what the scriptures tell us is, is that's actually God's heart. Um, and it's within his power to actually do that. Um, what we're looking at this morning, this passage, again, it's, it's 16 verses at the beginning of Romans. Lots of names, lots of people. Um, but it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot of a church that existed about 2,000 years ago, a couple millennia ago. And so what we're being asked to do is kind of conjure your, your inner Indiana Jones, your, your inner archaeologist, and go, look, if we're given something that's antiquated, something old, an artifact, a relic, why are those things so important to us? Why, why is this snapshot so helpful? Because in one sense, can't we see who we were 2,000 years ago? Who made up the church? Don't you want to know that? Wouldn't that be interesting? Who is here? Who started this church in Rome? And if we can get a, a clear enough snapshot, a clear enough picture, can we look at some of the things that they were doing and help us kind of clear through some of the fog of what should the church be doing in the 21st century? Where should our efforts truly be pointed? We have this tendency as human beings to really complicate things, right? If we have an artifact, we have a relic, a snapshot of an old church, can we just go, ah, that's what we're supposed to do? Those are the basics, right? Our passage is going to show us those two things this morning. Just two points, very simply. It's the people. We're going to look at the people. Who's here? Who made up this church in Rome? And the second point is their tasks. What are they up to? So number one, who are they? And then number two, what are they up to? So first, um, people. Who are they? Again, let's, let's go forward another decade. We're out of the 80s. We're moving into the 90s. Um, remember the Olympics in 92, all right? Barcelona. This was the year that the United States won the gold medal in basketball. And if you've ever heard the term or someone designated as the dream team, this is where it all began. Okay, so this was the original. This was the first dream team back in 1992. Okay, so this was Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, John Stockton, all the biggies. The United States sent the 12 best basketball players in the NBA to Barcelona to compete, and that's a generous term, to compete with other basketball teams from other nations. And it wasn't a contest, right? It wasn't a contest. There wasn't even a close second. USA won the gold, and nobody doubted it. And when you think about the church in Rome, and we think about what's going on, especially at this time in the church's history, this is pivotal. All right, we're after Jesus' um, death, his resurrection, his, his ascension, and, and the church of Jesus Christ is growing. It's in its infancy, right? And the question is, is when it comes down to it, who do you really want leading, starting off? What, what team dynamics do you want this, this, this group of Romans to have? And if you're like me, the natural tendency is you've got to have the dream team, right? There's, there's too much at stake. There's too much going on right now just to hand it off to the B team. You've got to go big. This is too critical, And when you read through this passage, you don't get the sense that you're hearing, you're looking um, at at a dream team. Instead, it it, it looks and feels more like the bad news bears. Not that these are bad people, it's just they're ordinary. Ordinary people like you and ordinary people like me. What were some of the distinctives here? Um, I really want to focus just on one thing. Uh, I I want us to focus on the diversity of this group. And we we see the diversity of it in, in, in three ways. And so just off the bat, it's pretty easy to see. We notice um, a great diversity of of gender in this church, this first church here at Rome. 
And what Paul and what God are telling us here is, is that Rome needed both men and women uh, to help start and help fuel and help work and serve uh, this church. Uh, look with me again at verse 1. Paul says, I commend to you what? Our sister, our sister Phoebe. He'll go on to say later in verse 14 as he's, as he's naming off this group of guys that these guys, they're my brethren. Right? So we have Paul, you know, this great apostle saying, look, in this church in Rome, we've got, we've got men and we've got women. Right? There's 26 names in this, in this passage. 26. Nine of which are women. He says of Persis and of Mary, a guy of a girl, this is again Paul speaking, that they didn't just work, but they both worked very, very hard. They're almost singled out. But then there's only one person uh, in this passage, again, of these 26, that Paul actually commends. He doesn't use this word, he doesn't use this verb with any other person, but he commends this person. And this person is Phoebe. And she gets two verses just to herself. And he says, her above all else ought to be commended because of her service and her work for the church. And so right off the bat, we just go, you know, it's not just... It's not just guys, uh, and it's not just the A-team out here um, leading this church in Rome, but it's very diverse. We've got men and women serving, working on behalf of Christ in this city. Paul says we need both. The Lord says we need both. Um, and, and not just gender, but there's a great diversity of race here as well. Uh, in verse 7 and verse 11, Paul refers to several names, several people as his kinsmen. Now, when we talk about our kin or our kinsmen, we're talking about biological family, right? Our brothers, our sisters, or maybe even our cousins. Those are our kinsmen. But remember, Paul is Jewish. That is his ethnicity. That's how he would describe himself to other people. He'd say, I'm, I'm a Jew. And those um, of, of, of whom were raised in the synagogue with him, both the women and the men, he would call them his kinsmen. These are my kinsmen, and these are my kinswomen. Um, they're my brothers and sisters in ethnicity. And so we see several of those here uh, in the Roman church. But notice when you listen to some of the other names and listen to some of the other language, this new convert from Asia, these are Greek names. These are Gentile names. These are people who were not raised in the church. These were not people who had parts of the Old Testament memorized. They can't spell Yahweh yet. And, and just so this, this, this point kind of um, solidifies in our minds and our hearts, imagine for a moment that you're... You're, you're in a Western, and you're walking down Main Street, okay, and it's like black and white, like almost sapia, and, and it's dry, it's dusty, it's noon, it's hot, and you're walking down Main Street, and you get to the saloon, and outside the saloon, we have horses, you know, roped and secured, you know, to the, to the front, and if you were to walk in, what would you assume you would see inside that saloon? What do you assume you would see inside of that bar? Cowboys. Right? And loads of them. Imagine if you're, you, you open the door to that bar and you find at all the tables and all mixed up, it's not divided half and half, but they're sitting across from each other. They're enjoying one another. They're having fellowship with one another. Not just cowboys, but Indians. You'd walk in and that would give you a moment's pause because you would say, wait a minute, these, these two don't go together. These are natural enemies. One is primitive. One is educated, right? It'd make you kind of stop in, in your tracks and go, what, what's going on here? 
Uh, the same is true for this church in Rome. Jews and Gentiles did not go together. They were natural enemies. And yet, what do we see happening here in Rome? What's going on is we have great ethnic diversity. We have, we have Jews, we have Gentiles, we have the religious, and we have those with no religious background all sharing and serving in the same church. Lastly, we have um, a great distinction in, in status um, in social roles. Um, going back to Phoebe, she is said to be a woman of means, which means she was probably wealthy. And according to her friends, they would probably say, yeah, Phoebe um, is in, probably in the top 10%. She has a lot of means, a lot of resources. And, and, and she's using that for the church. When we read through some of these other names, some of these other names are common names for slaves or for people who are in the blue-collar business. And and when we we talk about slaves in the New Testament, it's a little bit different than when we talk about slavery in American history. Um, To be a slave in in the first century, in in Paul's time, was to be an indentured servant to a family or to a group of people because you didn't have a trade, Um, because you didn't know how to do a, a particular style of work. So you offered your services, your labor, on behalf of a family, a group, or an individual. And so you were a slave. And so we hear of both, those with means... Those without, those you know at the top of the food chain, and then those at the bottom, uh, different status. We also have reason to believe that there are members of the of the imperial family in this church. We hear some of the names like Aristobulus and Narcissus. We read in other historical books that Emperor Claudius had close confidants, um, some that were Greek, and these were very very close to the royal and an imperial family. And those two names pop up in our text. Paul refers to him. Now, we don't know, it's not watertight if this is the same Aristobulus, if this is the same Narcissus. But there's a great reason to believe that there's royalty, nobility, aristocrats uh, in this first church. Um, and that's a big deal. And, and so, okay, so what? When we zoom out you know, from 50,000 feet and look at this church, we see, we see a group, we see a body of great diversity. We have men, we have women. We have old, we have young. We have those with means, those without means. We have Jews, we have educated, and we have the Greeks who've been outside the church for so long, all making up one church in Rome. second thing I want to look at is, is what they're up to. That's who they are. But now what are they doing? And, and again, the question is this, is, is we're hoping to cut through some of the fog here in the 21st century and just go, make it simple, Right? What are we supposed to be doing? What are the tasks of the modern church? And again, if we can get a glimpse or a snapshot of an older church, one of the first churches, can we go, ah, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, Paul commends a number of things in this passage. And, and unfortunately, we can't get to them all. I'm going to highlight two. But then there's one more activity. He says, above all else, this is what you need to be doing. Um, although you may be diverse in age, and stage of life. I don't want you to be diverse here. I want you all to do this. I want you to be uniform in this way. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what are they doing right now that Paul is like cheerleading? He's clapping, saying, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, the first is, is patronage. And we say, what in the world is, is patronage? Look back with me at verse 2. The end of verse 2. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. What does it mean to be a patron? And again, um, since Phoebe is, is a woman of means, 
This means, in short, that she has been Paul's at times and the church at times, their financial backer. She has helped fund efforts and initiatives on behalf of the church. And to add to it, um, she, um, according to most scholars, is the courier, the person who took the letter from Paul. Remember, he's in Corinth. He's not in Rome. How did this letter get from Corinth into their hands? Phoebe took it. She had means. She had resources. She could travel safely. This was her job. And so she was using her money, and she was using her gifts, her resources, to help the efforts of the church and to help Paul. And now, before we move on, um, let's, let's sit here for just a minute, because some of you in this room, because of your season of life, because your margins are so narrow, again, because of the, the season of life you're in, you have been faithful to give to the church. I'm not saying our church, but the church. You've never missed a month. You've never missed a percent. You've been faithful. And there have been times where you've been able to provide just a practical service to the church, nothing glamorous, nothing glorious. Nobody saw you do it, but it was a need that the church had, and you offered it. On the same hand, and at the same time, you've got this friend that you hang out with a lot. And this person is incredibly gifted at putting the good news into words and sharing it with people, sharing it with strangers. And in the quietness of your own heart, you just go, I wish I could do that. I wish I was better at that. Or, or maybe when this person walks into Miracle Hill or United Ministries, half the room knows this person, and they smile when this person walks in, and this person knows everybody else in the room, and you just kind of go, I wish I was that person. I wish I was good at that. Hit the pause button for a minute and hear what Paul is saying, but ultimately hear what the Lord is saying. If you have used your financial resources faithfully in the service of the church, and if there have been things that you have done for the church, seen or unseen, you're not worthy of being taken to the woodshed by God, criticized, disciplined, talked down to. You hear what Paul and God say? You're worthy to be commended. That's worthy of note. Again, because of the stage of the life of, of life that you're in, if that's all you can do, you know what God says you're worthy of? Honor. You're worthy to be commended. The church needs that. And you need to hear that this morning. You need to hear that that's okay. That is okay. He doesn't just celebrate their patronage, but um, this one's kind of fun. Um, he celebrates their mothering. Now, I know Mother's Day was last week, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll delve into it a little bit here this morning. Look again at verse 13, and maybe you picked up on this as we read through the passage. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, but also who? Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Um, and it is, isn't this one of the, the church's greatest fears, and especially that of you of, of mothers, is that when your biological children go off, like this whole identity factor is you really struggle with that. If I don't have biological children anymore, what am I going to do? And what Paul here says is, is I'm, not, I'm not the biological child of Rufus's mother, but she treated me as if I was a child of her own. I was cared for by her, sympathized by her, helped by her. 
um, in, ways of, of, in, 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 in ways that are worthy to be commended of. And, and we have those in the scriptures. And, and again, that, that should be a breath of fresh air to some of us in the room who are either fearing the emptiness syndrome or who are currently in the emptiness syndrome. The church needs you. It needs care. It needs oversight. It needs your creativity. It needs your courage. You've gotten routines down. We need help with that too. And so he celebrates the mothering uh, in the church. Um, those are two things, and again, there's, there's loads more. And we'll let you kind of talk about some more of these in, in community groups. But there's one more thing that he says, look, again, despite your great diversity, here's where you need to be uniform. Here's where you need to look exactly the same. And above all else, extend as much effort as you can in this department. And so the question is, is, what is it? What's this verb? What's this action that we're all supposed to be doing? This is 16 verses. This verb appears 18 times in this passage. Did you pick up on it? It's to greet. It's to greet or to welcome. And when we talk about greeting in our, in our context, you know, greeting for us is like, hey, morning, Jim. Hey, hey Bob. That guy. That's a great guy right there. And, and we, it's, it's just these surface-level, three-second niceties. That's not what Paul is getting at here. That's not what the text is. To, to greet someone, what this verb here actually means is to engage in hospitable recognition and remembrance of another. That's not just kind of like a one and done, okay, that person's been greeted, move on. No, it's you have this sense of, of time and longevity and patience and long-suffering. Long it's not just a hey, hey in the hallway. It's, it's, it's in word. But it's also in gesture. This is what Paul's getting at when he says, a holy kiss. Don't just believe that you're brothers and that you're sisters and that you're together. Show it. Have some sort of outward display, some sort of outward manifestation. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Um, and then here's the, here's the haymaker. That's a boxing term. Here's what puts us on our back. When we think about this, this concept of greeting this concept of, of welcoming, of, of recognizing and remembering. According to this passage, whose job is that? Who's the one who's supposed to be doing the greeting? Don't we assume, well, that should be the seasoned people. That should, that should be the majority, the people who've been here the longest. That's kind of their job, right? But who does Paul challenge? Who does Paul admonish to greet and to welcome? It's everyone. The majority should greet the minority. And in turn, the minority should greet the majority. Men and women greet one another. Old, young, greet one another. If there's one activity that should embody this, this group of people, it should be this, this engaging, this humble recognition and remembering of one another with a gesture, with a sign, with a hug, with a remembering with an identifying with. He's saying this is everybody's job. And the question for us is this, is what happens in a group of people like this if, 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 if the plan is this? The plan isn't, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come, and, and regardless of, of where I fit in or, or how my gifts are used, I'm going to greet everybody. What happens if that's not the mojo of the congregation, of the church, of the group? What happens if, if people come and it's, I fully expect that when I show up, that I better be greeted. There better be some visible signs of hospitality, because if not, 
I know who these people really are. Right? What happens if, if a church or a congregation gets, gets full of people who are more interested in greed, being greeted than, than greeting other people? What happens? Not a trick question. Right? It, it, it begins with just subtle despair and subtle frustration and, and anger. And, and then you kind of look for, for people who, who share your similar idea. And it's like, I wasn't welcomed. Well, you know, funny enough, neither was I. Yeah. And what are we going to do about that? Well... Let's pray about it. Let's remove ourselves. And, and you know, is, is this not where, where factions and, and church splits and disconnection comes from? And Paul just kind of undercuts it and says, you want, you want to undercut that, that whole schism, that whole divisive nature in our human heart? Greet one another. Everybody. That should be the action of the church. Uh, I want to close with this. Two things. Um, um, two images um, that I want us to get in our head a, a, as we close. Um, but, but first, this, this thought. You know, I, I doubt there's anyone in this room that when we talk about diversity, the, the beauty of it, um, very few of us would have heartburn with that. We, we, we love that. We cherish that. We would love to see the church of God. It already is global, but, but manifested here in Greenville. How awesome would that be? How beautiful that would be? But if you've ever managed groups of people, if you've ever been in group work, or if you've ever worked in human resources... As beautiful as diversity is, what else does diversity produce? Does it not also produce a diversity of ideas, a diversity of values, a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of language? As beautiful as diversity is, diversity is hard to embody. It's hard to embrace. It's hard to be one. It's hard to be together with people with different values, different backgrounds, different educations. And it's almost as if, as, as we read this and we hear Paul saying, greet, 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 welcome, welcome, welcome. You go, Paul, you're asking for the impossible. This is not our first time around the block. We know what happens when, when people with different values get in the same room. There is not unity. There's discord. There's separation. We're really, really good at noticing the distinctives of other people rather than identifying things that, in which we share in common. And so we, we just kind of do, we throw up our hands and just go, thanks, Thanks, Paul. Thanks for that, that challenge. That, we've tried. We are the world. We've tried. Nothing lasts. Nothing sticks. So is Paul asking for the impossible? And the good news is no, he's not. And, and consider this. Some of you are getting ready to go to college. Some of you are in college. Uh, and some of you remember college very well. <clears throat> consider this. There is... There's this phenomenon that happens in school, right? You, you show up your freshman year, you join that fraternity, that sorority, and, and you kind of find your close friends. And then you have that rival fraternity or sorority, and for four years you're kind of at each other with pranks and other things. And then four years is up, and then you graduate, and then you move hundreds of miles away from school, hundreds of miles away from home, and you realize that you're alone, and you're by yourself, and you don't have any community. And you just happen to check your junk, junk box in your email, and you found out that your college actually has a chapter of alumni in your new city. And so what do you do? You say, I'm there. I'm pulling in on two wheels. I feel alone. I'm just so anxious to be with other people. And other people that I share, you know, at least something in common with, it's a no-brainer. I'm starting here. And when you show up to that, uh, when you show up to that engagement, that, that, that dinner, that social, the first person you meet was in that rival fraternity and that rival sorority. But at that point, do you care? You don't, do you? 
you could care less what fraternity they were in. You could care less what year they graduated. What are you more interested in? We have a shared world. We have something in common here. And it's something greater than this old rivalry we had four years ago. Yeah, how dumb were we? Wasn't that dumb? That was so dumb. Right? Sharing something bigger in common. And, and so if, if we're left to ourselves to try to create and establish this idea of togetherness and oneness, it's going to be short-lived. We need something bigger. We need something stronger. We need something timeless and more powerful. And what Paul here is telling us is that exists. We have something to go to that's, that's bigger and that's more powerful than, than our, our little squabbles, our little differences, our differences in race, our differences in, in gender, our differences in, in, in socioeconomic backgrounds. It's something bigger than that. It trumps it. And that's being a child of the Most High. So where you can walk into the room and go, okay, we're from two different worlds, but we have the same father in common? This man you call father, I call father too. That makes us brothers. That makes us sisters. All of your sins have been forgiven. So have mine. And now we have a life of freedom, a life of joy that starts now, that goes into infinity and beyond. (laughs) That makes us more than brothers and more than sisters. We have a oneness that we could never create in ourselves. Only God can create it. The other image is this. Paige and I had a neighbor in seminary. His name was Jim, and he was gardening before gardening was cool. And he was very gracious with his property. He let Paige and I grow some things in his backyard. And one day he comes home and he says, Jake, i got to show you something. This is too cool. And so we go in the backyard and there in a pot is about, you know, a six-foot apple tree. And I thought, you know, cool, apple tree. And he's like, but this is, this is no ordinary apple tree. Here's what it was. After this tree was about four or five years old, again, you know, it's about six feet tall, it, it was cut in half horizontally, straight cut across. All the branches, all the leaves, uh, all the blossoms were removed. So all you have is this pot, this root ball, and a three-foot stump a real skinny three-foot stump of an apple tree. And then what these, what these gardeners did is they took branches off of four other apple trees, four different apple trees, and they grafted them on to this stump. Okay, so when you're looking at this little intersection where all of these you know, stumps and branches meet, it's kind of knotty and bubbly. It looks artificial, but, but it joined. It stuck. They're together. And in the spring and in the summer, you know, the fruit looks the same, the leaves look the same, but it wasn't until the fall that she began to see, well, there's yellow over here, but on this side there's pink, and over here it's green, but over here it's red, all of them on the same tree. And if you know a thing or two about apple trees, an apple tree, you just can't go buy an apple tree, put it in your backyard, and it'll grow, and you'll have, you know, copious amounts of apples. If you want to grow apples, you have to have another apple tree. You have to have a pollinator, right? You have to have multiple. The more you have, the better fruit you're going to get. But you don't need that with this tree. Why? Because there's already four different varieties on this one tree, and it pollinates itself. It's a beautiful picture. And what Paul says here is that's exactly what the church should look like. That's exactly what it should look like. That which belonged here that which belonged to the tree was cut off and disposed of and was thrown away and was cast aside. And in our minds, um, that's Jesus. He was killed. He was crucified. He was cast off. 
And what was done with this stump, what was done with this healthy rootstock, what was done with this tree, is that things that did not belong there were put on it to thrive, to survive, to grow, to bear fruit, to really have, have oneness. And who are those branches? Who are those leaves? Who are, what is that fruit? That's the church. And we remember that we were put there by someone else. We didn't, we didn't create this oneness ourselves. Somebody else had to do it. That was, that was the Lord. And when we bear fruit, we don't bear fruit because we have strength and energy in and of ourselves. We're being fueled and we're being fed by something else, and that is the Holy Spirit, His power, His energy. So He gets the glory. And when we come to commands like this, this challenge to greet one another this impossible task. How can we as as the church embrace this? Paul says it in his own language. He says it five times. He says, you are in Christ, so-and-so. You are in Christ. And six other times, to six other people, says, you are in the Lord. What he's saying is that you have been grafted, like these branches, into fellowship with God. You did not belong here, but you've been placed here because He's merciful and He's kind. Paul says, in some ways, you have been cosmically greeted and cosmically welcomed by the God of heaven and earth. He hasn't forgotten you. He's remembered you. He's engaged with you. It's not just surface niceties. Okay, you know, good to see you. You know, carry on with your business. No, he's engaged with you. The patron of the church is not Phoebe. It's not you or me. Who's footing the bill for the gospel? Whose account does this come out of? This, this great news that we can be one in fellowship with God. It's God Himself. He is the cosmic patron of the church. And He says, you know what? Something that happens when people recognize this, when we realize this, that God has welcomed and He has greeted us in a way that we don't even understand. It's so good. And it is so rich. And it is so joyful. The natural reaction is, I'll greet anybody. If God can do that with me, I can do that with anyone. So how does this impossible task become possible? It's remembering that the great patron of the church is not you, me, or Phoebe. It's God himself. And yes, it's hard, it's difficult to to meet and welcome and greet other people, but why is it easier for us? It's because we have been cosmically greeted and welcomed by the God who created the heavens and the earth. Kindly, warmly, and with joy... And now we're free to do the same, are we not? Oh, that the Lord would make this our reputation. That when people talk about Greenville, that they would say, there, there is something about the way they show hospitality and welcoming. That's not surfacy. That's not shallow. But there's something supernatural to it. And we would say it's because we have been reconciled to God and welcomed and greeted by Him. And we can do that for others. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we forget and we take for granted the great lengths and costs and efforts you went to to make sure that not just in this life but in the life to come that we get to share fellowship and oneness with you and with those who also call you Father and Christ uh, their brother. What a great joy um, to know that you have, have created this body, supplied it with everything it needs, And that we don't have to wait for it, but we can enjoy it now 
empower us to that end. Again, for your glory and for your namesake, we pray. Amen.